0: We all should know by now that the best way to create trust or urgency and actually control a conversation is through questions. Now, wouldn't it be interesting to hear how someone with a background in forensic science approaches all this? Well, let's have ourselves a pocket-sized pep talk because that's just who we have with us for this podcast. And that's what we're going to be talking about. A pocket-sized pep talk,
1: the podcast that can help energize your business and your life with a quick, inspiring message. Now, here's your host, Rob Jollis.
0: Today's guest, Michael Reddington, is a certified forensic interviewer and president of Inquasive Inc. Michael draws on his background in forensics and his understanding of human behavior through interrogation to teach readers how to improve their listening, communication, and relationship building skills, and how to use the truth to their advantage. You'll learn all about this and what he does in today's podcast, and from his new book, The Discipline Listening Method, How a Certified Forensic Interviewer Unlocks Hidden Value in Every Conversation. We're glad to have you with us, Michael. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Rob. I appreciate it. Good, good, good. Well, it's a pleasure. And so let's just dive right in. And with you, I want to start with that connection to forensics, obviously. So, you know, we all know that... Um, There are persuasive techniques for reducing resistance and increasing increasing commitments. But the big question I've got is how do you, from a forensic angle, I know how to do it from a sales angle. Maybe we're the same, but how do you, how do you do that? And I plan on being here for a while. I'm just telling you. (laughs) So let's start with that. How do you, how do you view that persuasive uh, approach from what you do?
1: I appreciate you asking. And I have a feeling we're going to start this answer out small and then build it out a lot greater as we go. For me, the single biggest factor involved in inspiring somebody to commit to changing their mind, changing their behavior, sharing information, taking the next step, whatever it may be, is encouraging them to line up whatever it is we're asking them to do with their self-image. The more we can do to help them save face protect their self-image and see this, whatever we're asking them to do is the next natural step in a progression. It fits with how they see themselves thinking, acting, talking in this, this particular situation, the more successful we will be, the less resistance we will run into the greater, the distance between whatever it is we're asking them to do and how they see themselves thinking, talking, acting in this situation, the more difficult it will be for us. So really from our perspective, and I know, coming from interrogation, people likely only picture what they've seen on TV, which I'm sure makes for great drama. Uh, but in reality, if I want someone to share sensitive information under vulnerable circumstances that leads to any type of consequence, it is going to be predicated largely to near entirely on allowing them to save face, avoid feeling embarrassed or judged, and protect their self-image. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's interesting. You may not know this about me, but I actually some years ago. Uh, trained almost 700 polygraph examiners in sales Uh, now we can call it sales it was basically again sort of like what we're doing today letting the two sides kind of meet and we weren't that far apart on a lot of things so so to me what you're describing right now is trust how do we create trust in the conversation Mm -hmm. because even in a polygraph exam i really do believe And I'm a very half full guy, but I really do believe we're just trying to get at the truth. And if you're incredibly anxious and agitated, we're not going to get at the truth. We're not helping either. Neither one of us is helping the other. So let's let's settle down on trust just for a minute. Let's do it. Uh, I know that, you know, from from my dealings and I don't you know, I don't want to spend too much time on what I know. I want to hear what you know. But from what I learned was there was a surprisingly lengthy amount of time on the front end. To get that trust built, it wasn't how you doing. Tell me your your name and your address. Good, we got the dials all set. We're ready to roll. It's a lot longer and more deliberate than that. So, if I'm a a, a salesperson listening right now, and I'm sitting here thinking, well, I you know I that's, that's all, I'm all about trust. Let's break it down tactically a little bit. I know it's a long period of time. What are you doing in that time?
1: In short, looking for opportunities to violate their expectations. And I know the word violate sounds negative potentially to a lot of people. Oh, yeah. yeah, (laughs) yeah, Keep going. If you didn't didn't expect me to be wearing glasses today and I'm wearing glasses, consider your expectations violated. I mean, it can literally be that benign. I thought it was going to rain today. It's sunny. My expectations are violated. So. When it comes to building trust, and we touched on this previously, trust is trust equates to vulnerability. So I'm really asking somebody to be okay experiencing vulnerability with me in this situation. And as we continue to walk this interrogation sales relationship down the road together, I believe most of our listeners today are probably familiar with the Miranda warning. If they haven't experienced it personally, good for them, but they've probably seen it on TV a million and a half times. So Essentially, I guess I should probably say it in the off chance somebody listening it's, it doesn't know what it is, but it's the ubiquitous statement that people hear when they're arrested, you have the right to remain silent, anything you say can and will be held against you in a court of law. What's important to remember in the sales profession as well is our prospects and customers have also been Mirandized because a lifetime of purchasing has taught them they have the right to remain silent because anything they say can and will be held against them at the sales professionals very first opportunity. So much like interviewers, sales professionals unfortunately typically enter into conversations with people who have more motivation to distrust them than trust them at the start of a conversation. Now, after time and years and we've built a relationship, of course, that starts to go away. But certainly in the early phases, people have more motivation to distrust us than trust us. So in order to start getting those tables to turn, Lots of things that I'm sure you've taught and people have heard in many other conversations you've had, things about if it's a face-to-face conversation, how am I distancing myself? What's my posture? What's my body language? How do I approach my word choice? All of those things but with everything I do in the conversation, I want to look to violate their expectations. Essentially, I want to treat them better than they expected. I want to give them the perception of having more control in the conversation than they expected. I want to give them the perception of being less rushed in the conversation than they expected. I want to give them more educational value in the conversation than they expected. So at multiple points in the first literally five seconds, five minutes, 15 minutes, whatever it is, they're telling themselves, Oh, this is different. This is not what I expected. It's better. This is different. This is not what I expected. It's better. And the more I can illustrate my understanding along the way, I'll continue to build my credibility, which will feed into that trust.
0: Okay. All right. A lot to unpack there. Uh, I b- Before I do, I'm just curious. Two, two yes or nos in a sense. Two, ni- two, two probing guys working at it, so, so we're going to out it. Two closed probes coming your way. Uh, what? Actually, technically not closed, but I don't want to split hairs. Uh, were you a, a former uh, police officer? No, sir. Uh, a former polygraph examiner? No, sir. No. Interesting. So, so what were you former? That could be a long list, from?
1: depending on what type of former we're talking about. So my investigative career started in the private sector. It was a complete okay. and total accident. I had a job in the security world. They offered me a management job. I took it. They needed somebody interviewed. I said, okay, I'll do it. To this day, I can't tell you why that kid confessed, but he did. And thus began my fascination, as I mentioned earlier, with why people consistently choose to share sensitive information under vulnerable circumstances that leads to consequences. So as my career grew largely in the Northeast here in the United States, I earned my certified forensic interviewer designation. Then after earning that designation, I was recruited to join Wiglanders Oloski and Associates. They're the leader in non-confrontational interview and interrogation training and advising based in suburban Chicago. Once I was with WZ, then I started spending a reasonable chunk of my time quite a bit working with federal agents and law enforcement on a myriad of different educational investigative opportunities in addition to my private sector experience. And the two gentlemen that founded that company were polygraphers earlier in their career. So I, I worked for polygraphers, uh, but I've been very fortunate to support various groups or, or facets of law enforcement throughout my career, but never actually a badge.
0: Okay, cool. Uh, we, you had me fooled <laughs> but, but uh okay that works uh, also just as a guy from words and i get what you're doing i i, I don't want to change it but you're fine. every time you use the word violate yeah, yeah. i keep I, it's okay i i hear the word exceed so you're okay. exceeding expectations sure sure sure. and, and i'm only doing that because um, you're right it, it's got some shock value to it we certainly know what you're talking about now but uh you know, that's, that's how we want to violate those expectations. When I say exceed expectations to me, I'm smiling going, yeah, I can live with that one. So, yeah, but I think yeah. we're on the same boat there. We okay. are. All right. So let's stay put just for a second longer because I'm going to bat it back as a sales guy. When, when somebody puts me, uh, puts the microscope on me and says, you know, tell me about trust. Mm-hmm. I'm usually talking very tactically about, open-ended questions as opposed sure. to, I don't want to interrogate. I want to have a conversation. Sure. Uh I don't, you know, avoiding the problem at hand. I don't really want to talk about the embezzled, the safe that got broken into. I do want to talk about where your office is and how long you've been working for the company. So kind of taking it away from the problem, keeping it open, beginning with the end in mind, I want to know where your location is because I want to figure out how close that may be to the safe, but, mm-hmm. but, so I'm all about the tactic side. You very quickly kind of rolled into almost body position where I am physically and things like that. And that's really interesting to me. And I think to the audience here. So just real fast, one more time, we, we got the obvious. I'm stating the obvious. You're stating the less obvious, which I really like. Give me that less obvious again on trust.
1: So to wrap it back, and if I miss exactly what you're looking for, please let me know. Everything we say and do should directly contribute to the goals we're looking to achieve, and often it's very easy for anyone in a sales profession, an investigative profession, in a leadership role, parent—doesn't matter—to be so focused on one area of the interaction that the blinders get put on and then we lose sight or or, or, uh, oversight, excuse me, of other areas as well. So for me, I need to make sure that when I'm approaching and interacting with somebody that I am, especially if I need to build trust in a situation where that might be difficult to unlikely, I need to make sure that everything I say and do works towards building that trust. So that could be if, if they're going to see me walking towards them, how do I approach? As a general rule, I want to manage my speed and gates. I want to make sure I'm extending my hand for a handshake and, you know, further away as opposed to closer. So they know, you know, friendly incoming at this point. I also want to be careful not to approach somebody nose to nose because that can seem antagonistic. I want to approach right shoulder on right shoulder. So it doesn't seem as antagonistic. If I'm waiting for somebody, The thing about shopping and retail, if you go to, I don't want to say anything that would offend anybody by accident, but kind of your everyday normal retailer, when you're done shopping, they hand you the bag over the register until you have a nice day. But if you have an opportunity to shop at a more bespoke retailer, after they ring you out, they walk around the register, they shake your hand, they thank you by name, they hand you the bag. I want to have that same experience. So if I'm waiting for somebody, I'm not waiting at a table or at a desk inside a room. I'm standing up outside of the door. I'm waiting for them to arrive. I'm greeting them there. I'm thanking them for volunteering their time. Okay. So the little things all add up. The you know people's talk, you know it takes x amount of seconds to make a first impression. In the research for the book that you mentioned earlier, and I appreciate the mention, I found three different research studies. The first two show that we're capable of determining somebody's trustworthiness, character, and intellect. Trustworthiness and intellect, for sure. I might be choosing the wrong word for the third one. But anyway, trustworthiness and intellect, capable of judging that, judging somebody's within 100 milliseconds of looking at their face and within 500 milliseconds of hearing somebody say the word hello. We're also capable of labeling somebody within 150 milliseconds of looking at their face. So for me, I want to be sure that the harder it may be to earn trust with somebody, the little things matter. And I don't want to win that. I don't want to try to win that trust immediately because the harder we try to win somebody's trust, the more it can have that reverse magnetic effect. Yeah, so no, I, want I, like to-
0: where, I like where you're coming from on that. Let me jump in real fast. and I, I see this with speakers as well. Uh, everybody wants to just almost crowd that topic a little bit. Uh, it, it, we're the same way I, I, with, with speakers, for instance, when I'm working with somebody who's giving a presentation, they want to come out, they want to just grab that audience by the ear. It doesn't really work that way. Uh, what you do is you create, uh, you, I don't know if it's how quite as fast, those milliseconds, but I know... Quickly, it's safe. It's comfortable. You know, I'm kind of liking that guy. And then we just then we just slowly kind of salt that food and just crawl before we walk. We walk before we run. But you're right. It's 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 like, you know, my dad was a real dog person, but he he met our dog for the first time, I remember. And he just very sweet dog. But he just went to kind of grab it by the head. This dog I I hadn't heard bark ever barked and pulled back and looked frightened can't mug them by the head i i understood what my dad was after but hand below the chin let's go in easy and and we'll get to the hug on the head soon so i'm with you on that and 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 i'm glad you brought that out but let me throw something at you uh you know personality i'm wondering if you read personalities and begin to mirror a little bit because even that coming around the desk I, sometimes i work with people just how their, their offices are set up and if I've got a social person, I want to come around that desk and get a seat next to you. But if I have a more dominant person, they'll get uncomfortable if I make that move. So m- one of my moves, and tell me if, if I got this right, is I'm kind of, I don't know again getting the millisecond, but give me five seconds. I'm pretty good at it, <laughs> which is a lifetime according to you. But uh, relatively quickly, I'm just looking at how you're what, what you're wearing. I might've looked at your email before you got in there. But I'm trying to adapt to your personality and read that and then make my decisions. Do you put personality
1: into this? For sure. It's better. to. We can't find people if we don't know where they are. Mm-hmm. And if we're in a situation where we need information from somebody, then they're in control of this conversation, whether we like it or not, because at the end yeah. of the day, it's their choice to share it or otherwise. So trying to meet them where they are, trying to be the person that they need in order to feel comfortable sharing this information is a pretty critical step. The one potential caution I like to share with mirroring is it's important that we don't mirror in a way that becomes obvious or disingenuous. Uh, often mirroring in some way, shape or form means changing our behavior to be, and I'll say this in air quotes that people may or may not be able to see, identical to how somebody else is behaving. It is true that when people are naturally in rapport, they mirror each other's behavior. It's it's 100% true. What becomes dangerous is when we attempt to jumpstart rapport by artificially mirroring somebody else's behavior. I'm not going to say it doesn't work. You know, There's millions of people for hundreds of years that, that have said that it does. The danger is if that effort either looks intentional and or unnatural, we're trying to behave in a way that's natural for somebody else, but not natural to us. Not only can it expose us and potentially erode trust, but now our cognitive resources are focusing on trying to make sure we're acting in a certain way as opposed to focusing on the greater goals we have to achieve. So whether we call it mirroring, whether matching, we kind of meet them halfway, we get in the same zone, but don't try to do it the the exact same way. Certainly the concept has a ton of validity to try to meet somebody and present ourselves to somebody in the way they need us to present ourselves to move forward.
0: Okay, good. Glad you cleared that up. And, And that makes complete sense to me. Let's do one more piece on this and then I'm going to move off of it. I told Michael before we started, I said, I don't have that many questions, but I have a lot of questions about the questions. (laughs) So so we've got trust, right? And now um, whether we're talking to somebody from a forensic angle or from a sales angle, we're still a lot of times trying to get at information they don't normally give out. We're trying Mm -hmm. to get... For, for me, a lot of times it's trying to get somebody past their fear of change to get them to act on mm-hmm. whatever this is I'm trying to get at. So trust is followed by, in my world, urgency, but it's actually okay. just basically getting somebody now to give us this information. Mm-hmm. And that's where the rubber, rubber meets the road for a lot of us. It, to us, it's now we've got to change the questions and they got to be a little bit tougher. Tell me how you shift from, okay, done a nice job. Um, I'm really feeling comfortable with you. My body language is loosening up because if it is a polygraph, for instance, the goal is really to get at the truth, not to get sure. at a criminal or anything. So sure. now we've got somebody who's going to who's most likely going to give us the truth, but the tougher questions are coming. What changes then in your world?
1: If I understood, first a statement, then make sure I understand your question correctly. You you mentioned polygraph, it's about the truth. From my background, every investigative conversation is about obtaining the truth. It literally has to be predicated on the truth. And honestly, that transitions very well to sales and very well to leadership. Because unfortunately, the people who we communicate, if we're in a sales role or we're in a leadership role, we might feel entitled to information based on our role and what we're trying to achieve. The people we're communicating with feel entitled to protect their own self-interests. So to your point, bridging that gap to get to the truth it certainly becomes kind of a mix of art and science as, as we've talked going through the program. But if I understood your question correctly, as we begin to almost tighten the questions as we go through, there's different ways to work it. The analogy you started to use earlier, I believe I heard, was almost like that uh, that funnel or that inverted triangle. And as we get closer to the bottom of that inverted triangle, yes, the the more um, difficult the questions may be, the greater the emotional impact those questions may create and the more resistance somebody may have to answering them. So transitioning from the investigative background to now sales teams and leadership teams are where I spend the majority of my time. One of the concepts that we work really hard on is the concept of illustrate before you investigate. So we know that questions can feel like invitations or attacks, and we know when it feels like an attack, people are going to get defensive. And in these scenarios, they're looking for a reason to be defensive. So we have to be more strategic. Uh, We also know that people will interpret how we communicate as proof for how much we respect them. should be proof of how much we respect them. So as we go through that illustrate before we investigate model, really, I want to do two things. I want to show some understanding of their world, and I want to do so while avoiding the word you until I get to the question that I really need to ask. Because often when we're building rapport and we're looking to establish trust, we say the word you a lot. Tell me about your day, what's going on in your life, where's your office? I think that was an example we used earlier. The more we say you, I'm sure you may have been thinking, I'm sure you may have been feeling, I'm sure your intentions were, your goals here. Every time we say the word you, we're poking somebody right in the self-image and we don't realize it. If we've got a strong relationship, it's most likely no harm, no foul. But in creating some of these relationships where we're looking to build trust, it can be much more difficult. So instead, we look to tell these illustrations that illustrates our knowledge, increase the perception of our credibility, and do so in a way that doesn't cause someone to feel the need to defend themselves. So in a super, super, super quick example, it could be something along the lines of, Rob, often in these preliminary conversations, we find that our customers come to us because they're experiencing one of three typical challenges. one, two. Three And as they experience those challenges, they typically start setting their vision towards where do they go next, and the goals they typically have are A, B, C, at the same time trying to avoid D pitfall and F pitfall. So as we look at the current situation, really the question that I would like to ask you is, bam, and now I go ahead and hit them with the question. So the whole setup of the question I'm not hammering them with unnecessary questions. I'm allowing them to think to themselves, oh, he gets it. He understands my world. He has experience here. This isn't his first rodeo. Yes, that resonates with me. Those are things I've thought and felt. Well, if other people have shared that with them, it must be appropriate for me to answer that question. So now by the time I answer the question, I've primed them to be far more likely if not to give me everything I'm looking right away, because you know, there could still be some, some tenuous relationships in play here, but I'm at least getting them moving in the right direction. Right.
0: Right. The, the book is the discipline listening method, how a certified forensic interviewer unlocks hidden value in every conversation. And I am um, telling you, I don't do this often. I'm going to be listening back on this podcast because what you said just now is actually, I i, I don't want to sound like a like an old guy, but it's like, yeah, I've heard it, I've seen it, I've said it, I've heard it. I've only been in this space 40 years. Really interesting and an angle that I really have never considered before. And so I want to go back and really study what you just said. So those of you listening to this podcast, you might want to join me because I think that one needs more than one listen to. Uh, it's fascinating where you're coming from. And I, and that's one of the reasons why I was excited when uh, I got an opportunity to get you on the show because I, you know, I speak to lots and lots and lots of salespeople and we tend to, you were know, describing a funnel, we tend to look at the, you know kind of our own version of a sales funnel and tightening up through the questions. I, the weird part, Michael, is that when I coach, when I'm just coaching people as a unconscious competent, sometimes an unconscious incompetent, I tend to use examples with me in them, even Mm -hmm. though they're not always me of. And so and it's my way of softening where I want to go. That's going to be a little um, uncomfortable for my client. So uh, and a lot of times I'm telling the truth, by the way, I have made that mistake, whatever. But referring to it as I've always struggled here, and this is the part that really got by me. I'm yeah. curious how you're reacting to the on um, you, and all of a sudden I get a much more honest answer as opposed to how are you dealing with this challenge of yours? And so, uh, but I think I've just sort of fallen into it. What i love about conversations like this in training period and i want people to remember this just for a second is that sometimes we can be unconsciously competent I, I i think i'm patting myself on the back i'm really not so i kind of done that one in my own way by accident but the danger of being an unconscious competent is if i don't have a conversation with michael i don't know that that's necessarily a successful tactic that i'm using who's to say i'm going to use it next week now, what we've done is we've, be, we've sort of put a light on and said, oh, that's called this. It's used over here. You might not want to try that one by accident anymore. In other words, think <laughs> it through. And that's that's the value. Sometimes we're always looking for things that people don't know. Sometimes we're looking for things that you're doing right. You just don't know it. And so in a piece I'm doing there, now I'm going to, when I review this, kind of go back from a coaching side. I'm sorry, from a sales side and look at it there. Um, I just know I can put somebody at ease and get them a more honest answer when I can show empathy, when I can be into that issue myself. And let's face it, most of the time when we're working with somebody on an issue that's holding back, we've tasted it somewhere in our lives. No so uh, very interesting. okay, let's let's change the paradigm a little bit. Let's sure. go to uh, when things aren't as uh, as simple, and the conversation is a bit contentious. And uh, I know that you write of different stages and uh, how to leverage these stages. Let's take a swing at that one for a moment. We've got potentially uh, contentious conversations, and we do in sales, when when we're talking to somebody about what's not working, even if we've earned the right, it's still not a pleasant conversation. Most people don't smile and go, oh, yeah, we're hemorrhaging money over there, and I'm really uh, disappointing (laughs) our clients on a regular basis. It's frustrating and upsetting for them. So walk me through your the the forensic science behind how we deal with that type of situation.
1: Well, I appreciate you asking. And as we say potentially contentious, again to your point, it doesn't mean that this is gonna go bad, yeah. it just means there's enough flammable material. We drop a spark, boom, here it goes. So for me, one of the realizations that really drove my pivot from the full-time investigative focus to the full-time uh, e- executive education focus is the realization that the cognitive process that interrogation suspects experience before they truthfully commit to saying, I did it, is for the purpose of this conversation, essentially identical to the cognitive processes that customers experience before they commit to saying, I'll buy it. And a big piece of that is the seven stages to potentially contentious conversations. So the first one, the first stage is really the pre-conversation stage. And this one gets overlooked the most, where we fail to realize that people bring their entire relevant life history into all of our conversations. So, And we kind of touched on this before. For sales professionals looking to create business development opportunities, unfortunately, we bear the weight of everybody else's negative sales experience and expectations. It's not fair, such is life. So it's important that we understand that, A, we bear the weight of all of that but also B, that people meet us before we meet them. So depending on somebody's industry, we all live in a small world. It just depends on how small and where in the world we are. But if somebody has heard of us or our company, or even our our product, our service, our industry, they start to create expectations for how interactions with people from that background will, will be. What will those experiences be like for them? So we bear all of that weight. And then assuming we do set a meeting for somebody, with somebody, excuse me, they're planning for that meeting from the time we said it, or they're at least setting their expectations for that meeting from the time we said it. It doesn't start at the door. So it's very important that we consider that pre-conversation stage and we don't ignore it because it has a huge impact on our relationship and to all of the points that you made, the chance to build trust which is why the second stage of the introduction becomes so important. So we'll flip a coin and decide if we want to say violate or exceed expectations. But really, that's what we're looking to do there. Because literally, the introduction at the start of the meeting, whether it is virtual or whether it's in person, that is our opportunity to begin to reframe how this conversation is going to go, to set the tone and begin working towards where we want to be. So really, not just thinking of the, the introduction as, a, oh hey we're here but really thinking of it as a pivotal moment to try to begin to bring somebody to where we need to be for us to go to where they need us to be in order to get the information flowing once the conversation starts we get to the third stage which is when they begin to listen to us and this is a point worth stopping and I'll pause after this one especially in the sales profession because often when sales professionals begin their conversation one of the big risks is if they just start out by lighting somebody up with questions, question fatigue is real. People don't like being hammered with questions, especially at the front end of the conversation, but whether we're asking somebody a bunch of questions back to back or whether we're going into some sort of explanation At the start of the conversation, it's easy for us in our own bias, our own confidence, our own expectation to believe that somebody's tracking with us. When in reality, when somebody starts to listen, more often than not, they're not listening for what do we have to offer? They're listening for what does this have to do with me? And how does this line up with the expectations that I brought into this conversation? So it's almost like a matching game that they're playing in their mind as they listen to us. Once they believe that, okay, I've got a match. I think I know what this is about. I think I know where this is going. And I think I know what the potential opportunities or outcomes are for me. Then they transition into the next stage and start talking to themselves. But before I get there, I don't want to just run away from you here. I'll pause there for any thoughts or questions that I may have created so far.
0: Yeah, no. Uh, and, and, you know, I've, I've already, I've, I've got my fastball behind my back. I'm ready with my last pitch. Cause, cause we're going to talk about how to get this conversation started. You know, it's funny. Um, uh, that's not an accident. I'll always in process. I always teach that last because it's easier when we know what the conversation that you're describing right now looks like to say, here's how we'll start it. It's kind of weird. It's like when we learned in school, how to, write a composition and we we're supposed to write a topic sentence and we sat there for a day hanging on a topic sentence i finally had an english teacher in 10th grade who said well of course you're sitting there you don't know what the paper looks like why don't we write the paper then you'll know what the topic sentence is going to look sure. like so for a lot of this for me it's it's what that first 45 seconds looks like yes even even down to that um you know uh, we call it a whiffum. Uh, what's yeah. in it for me right um sure. uh, and working that in but I'm having no trouble following you, except you're giving salespeople, including me, too much credit because um, I'll I'll pay a dollar for every salesperson who's asking too many questions up front, Uh, and I'm not going to be departing with many of my dollars, believe me. (laughs) We're working real hard. The problem with salespeople that we struggle with is we keep getting product trained, and people say it's sales training, so we learn a ton about product, sure, and then we spend more time wanting to tell somebody about it Mm -hmm. than actually asking questions that... We know a lot of the answers, too, but letting that client paint the picture. So uh, w- believe me, we're listening to you real hard on the questions up front. We, we-, we won't ask too many, I promise. <laughs> good, good. There's spots for
1: them, but not yeah. right out of the gate.
0: Yeah. So, all right. So keep rolling. We're, which What number are we up to now of the seven? Four. Four. Four.
1: Okay. So once they feel like they understand where this conversation is going, to your point, what impact is this going to have on me? Now they transition in that internalization and self-talk stage. And this essentially is an internal negotiation. Okay, based on what I've experienced with Rob so far, here's what I think I'm willing to tell him under these circumstances, assuming he asks the right questions, assuming he treats me the right way, assuming what he's describing to me is something that I need, assuming I'm happy, assuming I'm willing to share this information under these circumstances. If the circumstances aren't met, the information is not getting shared. Mm -hmm. Once they make that decision, then they transition into the fifth stage, which is join the conversation. Just because somebody has joined the conversation doesn't mean they're staying. Often when people join a conversation, especially in a sales environment, the most obvious analogy is I'm dipping my toes in the pool. I'm willing to give you a shot. I'm gonna kind of check the temperature here. If it feels good, I'm gonna keep walking in. If it doesn't, I'm going right back to my chair and my cold drink where I felt safe, calm and secure. So as they begin to test the water, if their expectations or if, if the situation that they set for themselves, what they need to experience, if that's not met, Now they can start to pull themselves away. And that's not necessarily they hang up the phone or they get up and leave. It could be we start getting one word answers. It could be we start getting a whole lot of, I don't know, I can't recall. I'd have to check, have to verify. Uh, You know, somebody, if they really, really, really lack the ego strength and feel like they need to do it could become aggressive with us. What's more likely is somebody just becomes passive aggressive. They get a little snippy with us just to kind of get us to go away. But those could all be indications that for whatever expectations they send for themselves, they'll share information if these expectations happen. We've missed those expectations. Then the last one is the post-conversation follow-up. And all too often, this one is either missed or mishandled. I imagine most salespeople are great at following up specifically when it comes to trying to set the next appointment, trying to set the next meeting, sending the the materials to look at, sending the proposal, whatever it may be, or in reality, if you want someone to believe, if we, any of us want someone to believe that we listen to them, the only way to give them tangible evidence to, to prove it is to follow up after the conversation by including something we discussed in the follow-up conversation. And honestly, some of the most powerful information we can include is information that's not directly related to the transaction we're trying to start. So if you and I were having a conversation and you made the fastball analogy earlier, you were talking about going to a... Yankees game or wherever you may be, then I'm going to the next time we talk it's like, hey, how is the Yankees game? I forget. Was it a day game or a night game? Were you comfortable or were you sweating, smelling the incinerators across the street on the roofs of the building? Like Now, when I start asking you about the baseball game, I cared enough about you and our conversation to remember that. Now, I've got to get to the business value of this or or the conversation doesn't go anywhere. But at least following up and letting you know that I've listened by demonstrably sharing something makes a huge difference. We talked about trust earlier. and something I probably should have mentioned. There's a big difference between trust and faith. People typically, trust all religious connotations aside, please, people typically trust what they have tangible evidence of. And people typically have faith in the things they believe in strongly yet lack the tangible evidence. And all too often, especially in sales, we act like people should trust us, but we haven't given them any tangible reason. So we're actually asking them to have faith, which is a bigger climb. The end of every conversation is the start of the next. Sales professionals live in a world of perpetual iterative relationships. So what we are doing in between conversations, we're not doing potentially, is where we really have the opportunity to solidify that trust or to, to doom it, to ruin it before we have the chance to continue the relationship. Wow.
0: Powerful. And you're right. You know, for me, it's, it's we actually built a model at Xerox back in like the late 80s. And it had twenty-two steps in it, and the only thing we didn't have was anything about trust up front. We just went get the client to trust you, and then the model begins. Yeah. <laughs> you will not get anybody to trust you. Just bring everything my magic else fairy, becomes though. very anemic. Yeah, I mean, where are we going? So it's all about trust, and you earn that, and um, that's why I like talking to you because. And I I'm, I'm, I'm really think we should go out and get that book because there are process behaviors in there and you're coming from a different angle, but an angle that I can relate to. So it, it and I'll, I'll give you one back that I think you'll like in sales. Uh, two of the most powerful words that I believe we can ever use. And so powerful that when I had a role play room at Xerox two weeks long, I only had two words on the board facing the salesperson and the words were dot, dot, dot. You said dot, dot, dot. Meaning I don't care where you put this in, but when you bring stuff up, you don't just say and another reason is this. You say another reason, Michael, is you'd said earlier that when you were doing such and such and such, well, what we're trying to do, in other words, remind that person that uh, because it pulls them in, uh, literally pulls them into the conversation. They'll lean forward when you mention, as you had, as you had said earlier, uh, and I took a note on this, you said that such and such. Well, what we're trying and it 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 reminds him. I'm not pulling this from left field. It's not something that I'm actually looking for. It's something that I appreciated that you had mentioned, and that's why we're where we are. Very powerful words, in my opinion.
1: For sure. Um, if I'm talking to somebody and I think the relationship, the trust level is low, like non-existent to low. We're still early. Instead of going with the you said. I may some, say something along the lines of what I believe I heard earlier, yeah. or if I was paying attention correctly, I believe I picked up on. So that way it's on me. It's not on them, especially oh, yeah. early on. But once the conversation's going, and I know, I, I feel a pretty good vibe here. we've The relationship is building. Now it's a lot easier to go back to you, Sigs. I don't have to worry uh, okay. about accidentally stepping yeah. on your toes.
0: Yeah, no, I'm smiling because I just got schooled by a forensic scientist. Um, abs- no, no, I, I listen, I'm taking notes on you. Remember what Michael said 20 minutes ago. We're trying to kind of take that word you out a little bit. And that's exactly what you did by taking. First, I was leaning back going, oh, it's style. And that's fine. But I went, no, actually, that's not style. He's practicing what he preaches. And he's saying, I'm going to do those same words. Only I'm going to pull the word you out of it, Rob. And how does this sound? And I like the way it sounds. So again, that's one of the reasons why I really want to go back, listen to this. And, um, and, and and Michael's Michael doesn't want to talk about the book at all, but I'm telling you, (laughs) we got to get that book. And one of the things that we try and do here on this podcast is when you get the book, we write a review for that book, because that's, that's the cherry on the Sunday. And that's what every author wants to, wants to get on that review. Now, Michael, isn't asking for that. So don't listen to him, but I'm (laughs) telling you, that's what we're going to do. Last question. I'll let you go. Michael really enjoyed it. Uh, I, we promised how we're going to get this thing started. We're coming back for the topic sentence. So, (laughs) Um, How do we set up this conversation that we're about to have if you have some process behaviors
1: there? And we're go that's it. Well, first, thank you for the continued shout outs about the book. I really do appreciate it. Um, when you say set up the conversation, just to make sure I'm I'm on track and you mean like actually schedule the conversation, or now we're in the conversation with somebody's an example. Maybe I can work well,
0: I'm trying to I'm we're sitting down, it's the first time we've met. I want to make yeah. want this to be a successful conversation. Sure. So uh what are some of the things that I gotta how do you come out of the gate? Because I know you don't go, okay. How are you? So why do you I mean we we, we got to give them something to, to yeah. ease in. Yeah. You ready to buy what I'm selling here? I got the
1: paperwork. Yes. Come on, sign it. We won't we'll save our time here. Um, for me, one of the tenants that we've built the book around now that you brought it up is the concept of allowing the conversation to come to us. The more we chase a conversation, the more we chase people away. You mentioned dogs earlier. Wait, how they do this right? I heard you I heard you said something about dogs earlier. Did I get that right? Uh, my dog is a rescue. I live out in the middle of nowhere. We found her out in the woods and decided to keep her. She's been with us for almost eight years now. When I let her out at night, if she decides she's going to walk off and smell some things, if I walk towards her, she's gone. But if I just come back and open the door and she hears that door open, she's coming right back in. So for me, I don't want to chase anybody. And it's honestly, I mentioned the interrogation company I worked for, Dave Zoloski, one of the co-founders. He watched an interrogation I did. We used to audio, video, record all of them. And I thought I was doing a great job. He paused and he looked at me and said, Mike, you sound too needy. What do you mean I sound too needy? It's like, you sound too needy. The more you sound like you need the information, the less motivated they are to give it to you, the more motivated they are to withhold it. And to me, that is something that stuck in the front of my memory and carries into the business conversations as well. So at the start of a conversation, I don't want to chase anything. I wanna make it about the other person, especially in sales. Oftentimes I will look to give them the microphone first. I will give them every opportunity to start the conversation before me. If I have a good plan, if I know where I wanna be, both strategically and tactically, I know where I want this conversation to lead me, it makes no difference where we it. I can start it wherever somebody else wants to start it and I can start working backwards to where I wanna be, that's no problem. So why force it at the beginning? If somebody, if it ends up being I'm the one that's going to start the conversation, because we all run into that one guy that took a negotiation class in the 80s and whoever says the first word gets electrocuted or something like that. So I'm not going to sit here and get in a staring contest at the beginning. But if I'm going to start the conversation, the conversation always is a strong word as close to always as I can think of. Starts with demonstrating my understanding of their world before I ever start asking questions or talking about myself. Um, And I'll I'll give you, I guess, I'll do two things if if we've got the time. I'll give you kind of the closest thing I've got to a silver bullet and then a couple quick examples. Um, The closest thing I have to a silver bullet is the phrase, please correct me where I'm wrong. If I was to say to somebody, please correct me if I'm wrong, it comes across as arrogant. I'm Charlie Brown's teacher after that. They're not listening. But if I've got somebody, especially if I've got somebody who is in a potentially distrustful mindset or wants to dominate the conversation, they want to tell me where I'm wrong and be the cool guy in the conversation, I will literally start the conversation by saying something along the lines of, Rob, I appreciate you taking the time to connect today. Thank you. I want to be very respectful of our schedule. So really at the start, just to make sure that I'm tracking in, please correct me where I may go wrong. My under- current understanding is boom. And then that's where I avoid the word you. Generally, when people in this industry, generally organizations come to us, generally in situations such as this, and now briefly, you know, three minutes or so, I'm going to illustrate my understanding of the situation. Then I'm going to stop. And when I stop, as long as I did my homework and I'm in the ballpark, I'm going to keep working that baseball analogy. I'm going to get one of two responses. The first one is either going to be you're right or you're not wrong. My credibility just jumped, my trustworthiness just jumped or close, not quite. And either one are totally acceptable responses for me because in both situations, far more often than not, the person on the receiving end of my statement picks up the microphone and continues the conversation without me having to ask a single question. If I get the close or not quite or almost, Because I asked them to correct me where I'm wrong. What do you think they're about to do? Yeah. Yeah. Which which puts them in a powerful seat, but gives me the information I need. I just need to put my ego in my back pocket. Right. Right. If they say I'm right, they typically tend to extend the conversation. The first time I used that, I was in the very first conversation with a company in the mortgage industry about keynoting their annual sales meeting. And. I don't know how you feel about this, but I always, one of my biggest pet peeves, I'll just be straight with it is when there's more people on the call that haven't been introduced, Like just have enough respect for your fellow human being to let us know everybody that's on the phone. I don't think that's too much to ask. So the conversation starts with the, I believe it was the director of sales. If I recall correctly, she asks me a question before I can answer it. The VP of sales, her boss pipes up and says, Mike, before we go any further, I need to know how many clients you've worked with in the mortgage industry. And I'll be respectful of your time. So I'll just tell you the answer was zero. (laughs) So if I tell him none, but that doesn't matter, you'd be my first. The industry doesn't make a difference. This is about people. This is about connection. I'm dead in the water. It doesn't matter. So instead of answering his question, well, I answered it, but instead of answering it directly, I said, great question. And please correct me where I'm wrong. I, they use the indirect sale. So they sell to retailers, retailers, and customers. With all of the clients I've worked with who've embraced an indirect sales model, the three most challenges they typically run into were one, two, three, their three biggest goals are often A, B, and C. And the one place that they're looking to make the most headway is how do they connect their messaging culture to the end customer via a retailer? I never heard another word from him. The woman said, you're not wrong and kept the conversation going. And maybe the speaker they really wanted was busy, but I was keynoting the conference. Um, The second example to get back to letting the conversation come to me is just last year, I met a woman locally where I live, who is also a speaker. We spoke together at an event, started talking to each other. She said, hey, I've got someone I think you should meet. So I set up a call with that guy at the end of that call. He said, you know, I've got someone else I think you should meet. I'm going to create the introduction. So he says the introduction. So now two degrees of separation later, I'm jumping on a Zoom call with somebody I've never met before. And typical, who knows how many sales training programs teach this, This guy gets on the call and says, hey, Mike, nice to meet you. I know we set this up, but I'm just curious. You know, what really are your goals for this conversation? I looked him right in the face and said, say hello. And he kind of made a face. He's he's like, say hello. I said, yeah, I met Brittany. She was really nice. She told me I should talk to Joe. I met Joe. I was really impressed with Joe. And he said, I should have a conversation with you. So the way I saw the situation is two people who I was impressed with said, I should have a conversation with you. It seemed like a no brainer. Thought I'd make the time. He literally smiled and said, all right, man. And I had a training engagement with his company booked within two months.
0: Nice. So when when we talk about my breath on that example, I'm like, I'm not sure where this is going. Okay. (laughs) But
1: literally, like most people in that situation are expecting an answer somewhere along the lines of, well, I've got these really great training programs. And I understand that you have a training team. So I was interested in learning some of your opportunities or challenges or goals or, you know, insert typical sales question here. And now I've turned them off at the beginning of the relationship. So instead, it was like, "Nah, two people I like said I should talk to you seem like a no brainer. Right. Well, where do you go? I guarantee you he doesn't have a rebuttal plan for that if he was looking to get out of this conversation. No, no and, not at all. And now we've reset the tone. Oftentimes, right. the, most settle, the most unsettling person is the person who can't be unsettled. So yeah. if we're calm, if we're in control, if we let the conversation come to us, it tends to flow much easier.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I liked it. It's uh, it's interesting. I've been I can't count how many times I've had people getting on and and give me some real weird uh, sort of just kicking the tires and testing me questions. The the only thing that, you know, I, I can tell you from a process standpoint is the biggest mistake we can make is to when somebody pushes into a corner to begin pitching. Oh, sure. I, I, I detest the word pitch, by the way. I don't, I don't like it. I'm not, not sure when I'm, you know, now I'm going to pitch you Mike. Uh, oh, you mean you're not going to listen to me anymore. You're just going to talk and talk and talk. until so I have to figure out how to get you to stop. Oh, that sounds good. I was hoping we'd do that. Yeah. yeah no one, I, no one looks forward to a pitch. Why don't we even use the word? Uh, but uh, so I, so I like the way uh, you, you avoided that because when people throw that, it's almost a trap question at you. Yeah. That's the knee jerk reaction of how about, how about, how about, how about, well, what I offer is boom and boom and boom. Uh, you Again, once again, you give too much credit of, and they ask questions. They don't, they begin to pitch. Mm-hmm. You can't pull out of it. It's like a, like a nosedive on a plane. Sure. Woof. Well, I got to tell you lots of good stuff here. Really interesting. Um, and I, and I, I talked to a lot of salespeople. I don't get them from your angle. And what's cool is some areas we're lined up and some areas we go a little bit different direction, uh, not dramatically different. It's just you have a different way of doing it. And um, it's interesting to me. I, I can see why you're getting some bit. You're getting businesses as a keynoter in seminars. Do you deliver uh, one and two day seminars yes. on top of those keynotes?
1: Yes. But, good. How do people get a hold of you, Mike? I appreciate you asking. They can learn more about the training courses we offer at inquasive.com, I-N-Q-U-A-S-I-V-E.com. They can learn more about me and experience videos and interviews and such at michaelreddington.com. They can learn more about the book at disciplinedlistening.com. And if they're on LinkedIn and they're looking for someone else to connect with, they can find me at Michael Reddington CFI.
0: Good. And that's two D's in Reddington, right? Yes, sir. Thank you. I knew that. It was just a little trick question to make sure everyone else knows it. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, I'm grateful you were able to spend time with us. Michael asked me before we started, how long will this go? I didn't give you the real answer. The real answer is as long as it's interesting. <laughs> and So I, I always say maybe 30, 35, but we went longer today because we're really getting some great stuff in there. And, and I'm grateful. So, Mike, thanks so much for being on the show. Really appreciate
1: it. I appreciate you having me. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you
0: you bet. Well, we'll do it again as well as we can next time. Until then, everybody, stay safe.
1: Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate and recommend it on iTunes, Outcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also get more information on this show and Rob at com.